Threats of violence can be just as damaging as physical violence. The paranoia you feel, wondering who and what to trust, and the emotional turmoil, wondering if it is ever going to come to an end. When a man in Telford, England became the victim of ongoing threats and racial abuse, it wreaked havoc on every part of his life. When those threats were seemingly realised, his family and friends did everything they could to seek justice. This fight didn't stop, even after one of his friends and his nephew were also found dead in strikingly similar circumstances. Today, we are going to uncover how racism killed Johnny Elliott and Jason and Errol McGowan. Hello and welcome to the 25th episode of Uncover True Crime Podcast in the fourth episode in our Racism Killed series. This week, we will be uncovering cases where racism killed a person of colour and they have either not gotten justice or their case remains unresolved. So far in the series, we have uncovered the conviction of George Stinney and the murders of Tamir Rice and Stephen Lawrence. If you have not listened to those cases, I really would appreciate it if you would check them out. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and other podcast streaming apps as well as on YouTube by searching Uncover True Crime. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Uncover underscore pod and on Instagram at Uncover True Crime Pod. Before we talk about today's case, I want to discuss Travail Wise. In February 2020, he arrived home to see there being a car crash outside of his home. He rushed over to help the people involved, and this is what he said happened next. Quote, The police officer had chased some lads down the road, and he turned around with his taser and ran back up the road and told me to get on the ground. I refused to get on the ground because there was no reason for me to get on the ground. And then he just fired the taser, which hit me in the throat. By that specific officer, I personally believe it was because I was black. There could be no other reason for it. He was fixated on me. There were other people around, you know, standing next to me. He didn't order them to get on the ground. I believe it's because I'm black. The incident was filmed by people in the passing car and more footage exists of the policeman slamming a black man into a car bonnet and punching him three times. Travail passed out after being tased and was treated by paramedics. He was then detained for 19 hours for assaulting the police officer in question. Although Travail said he never assaulted anyone, he was just mad he was being treated like a criminal for trying to help people. He agreed to take an anger management course which he had to pay £90 to attend. West Midlands Police Chief Constable Dave Thompson feels that the murder of George Floyd had a massive impact on people in the area. Quote, I think that this added to tensions we are now policing here. Young black people across the West Midlands will rightly feel strongly about these events, and the fact that they are in the US makes no difference. They affect how policing is seen on our streets. Unquote. This incident is one of six that's being investigated by the Independent Office for Police Conduct that involve excessive force on black males in the last few months. The officer that tasered Travail is also under investigation for another unrelated incident, but has now been suspended for two more attacks. On the 21st of April 2020, he kicked a teenage boy, and the day after, he punched another man. Assistant Police Chief Matt Ward condemned the incident, saying, quote, If there are those colleagues, I want them out of this organisation. I don't want to be part of an organisation they're part of, and the vast majority of staff at West Midlands Police do not want them part of this organisation either. When talking about the investigation, the West Midlands Regional Director for the IOPC, Derek Campbell, said, I would like to reassure communities in the West Midlands that full, 
fair and thorough independent investigations are underway into all these incidents and the conduct matters brought to our attention by the force. Unquote. I really hope it does and any officer that exhibits excessive force, in my opinion, should be fired. But would he have tasered a white man trying to help people in a car crash? But, without any further ado, let's uncover the deaths of Errol McGowan, Jason McGowan and Johnny Elliott. 34-year-old Harold McGowan lived in Telford, England with his long-term partner Susan Buttery and they had two children together. As it was his preferred name, I'll be referring to him as Errol for the rest of the episode. He was a hard-working man who had two jobs to support his family. He worked as a builder and as a security guard at the Charlton Arms Hotel. Errol was known to be very anti-drugs despite having acquaintances who had substance misuse issues and who were in debt to local gangs. Errol despaired when he saw gang rivalry between white and Asian gangs in his area and even gave a young boy money to leave Telford after he had gotten in over his head and wanted to get out of the life. Errol was apparently considering, quote, exposing, unquote, the gang activity in his area, and by this I assume he was going to go to the police, but I don't know if he ever did. One thing he did report to the police time and time again was the racial abuse, harassment, and intimidation he was facing at the hands of 8 to 10 white men in his area, one of whom was called Robert Boyle. It all started in 1998, and while I'm not sure if the harassment was triggered by one specific incident, Robert was barred from the pub where Errol worked as a security guard. People would call Errol at his work to insult him with racial slurs and to intimidate him. Sometimes they even threatened to kill him. They would follow him from his work to his house and on one occasion they tried to physically drag him out of his car. His colleague and friend Malik Hussein also suffered the same abuse and Robert Boyle was convicted of a fray after verbally abusing Malik in a fast food restaurant, saying, quote, There ain't no black on the Union Jack. Unquote. He spoke to his friends on several occasions describing his hatred for people of colour. He showed them a list he had compiled full of names of black, Afro-Caribbean and Asian men living in the area and Errol's name was on this list, as was Malik Hussein's. In an inquest conducted in 2011, Robert confessed to being a white supremacist, saying, quote, I am racist, Jay, but I don't go around saying it. As long as I keep that to myself, I can think what I like. If you lived here, you wouldn't like Asians either. Unquote. Errol was understandably terrified of Robert and told his family, quote, If anything happens to me, it was Robert Boyle. Robert threatened and abused him several times over the years, but other than that one afraid conviction, his concerns fell on deaf ears. The abuse continued for two years and it affected every aspect of his life. He was prescribed Prozac to help with his depression and sleeping tablets, as the fear of being attacked kept him up almost every night. He confided in his partner Shannon, saying, quote, I don't know what to do, unquote but was more fearful for her and their kids' lives than he was of his own. His friend Leroy stated, quote, The main thing on Errol's mind was he knew they were going to kill him, one way or another. His biggest fear was what they were going to do to his kids and his partner Sharon, unquote. He quit his job as a builder and was considering quitting his security job at the hotel due to all the stress and harassment he was receiving. Errol said to one of his friends, quote, Someone is going to die in this town before the police do anything about it, unquote. And sadly, he was right. Metropolitan Police Protocol dictates if a racial crime or incident takes place, it should be recorded as such, but this doesn't always happen. 
PC Wright, who dealt with some of the reports, said, quote, Although Hussein is Asian and McGowan Afro-Caribbean and Boyle white, it was not a racial incident. It revolves around the fact that Hussein and McGowan are doormen at the Charlton Arms and refused to let Boyle in as he was banned, unquote. He would later admit that this was an error on his behalf, although he wasn't the only officer guilty of not taking the abuse seriously. On the 26th of June 1999, he called the police after a woman phoned his work looking for him. She told one of Errol's colleagues, quote, well he's a black bastard and he's dead. He told the dispatcher, quote, I'm basically saying I'm living in fear of my life, unquote. The dispatcher didn't seem to agree and categorised his call as a grade 3, which means it is logged as information given, but not acted upon. She did, however, leave a voicemail for Sergeant Ian Farmer, where she detailed the incident Errol had reported. He was on annual leave at the time and didn't receive the message until three days later, but even after listening to it, he didn't act on it, saying, quote, I felt if he wanted to speak to me, he would have got in contact again, unquote. Errol would never contact the police again after filing this report, not because the police were clearly incompetent and unwilling to move from their desk to investigate ongoing racial abuse, but because he died six days after making that call. On the 2nd of July 1999, Shannon reported Errol missing at 12.17pm as he had not arrived at work that day, despite having left the house at 6.30am. His friend Malik started looking for him and that's when he saw Errol's van outside one of their friends' house. Errol had apparently been checking on the house every now and then as the owners were away. Malik banged on the door several times and received no answer so he called the police who broke down the door. Once inside, they found Errol dead, hanging from a flex of iron from a doorknob. Convinced it was suicide, police did little investigation at the scene. Despite neighbours saying they'd heard loud banging in the property just hours before he was found, and that they had also seen two men entering the house earlier that day, they did not wear any sort of protective equipment, meaning that any evidence might have been contaminated or completely lost. One officer even said that he was asked not to wear shoe covers or gloves. They didn't do any forensic testing on the flecks of iron on any part of the scene or on his van. As far as they were concerned, it was a suicide as there was no signs of forced entry. They didn't even seem to take into account that the doorknob he was hung from was only five feet high, which would have made it very difficult for him to complete suicide in the way they claimed he had. The family did not accept this verdict and fought hard to get his case reopened as a homicide particularly his nephew Jason McGowan, who worked for the local newspaper. He used all resources available to him and was apparently, quote, getting very close, unquote, to finding out the truth about Errol's death. The threats against the McGowans continued, though, as Errol's brother Cliff received a call from an anonymous person who said, quote, if you lot don't back off this Errol thing, one of you will pay. Unquote. On the 31st of December 1999, 20-year-old Jason and his newlywed wife Sinead went to the Elephant and Castle pub to celebrate the turn of the century. There are differing reports about Jason's mood that night. According to his friends and wife, he said he didn't need to make any New Year's resolutions as his life was perfect the way it was. Sinead said he was his, quote, usual smiley self, unquote, and nothing seemed amiss. However, other pub goers said that he and Sinead had had an argument and Jason looked upset and teary. At around 12.30am, he left the pub saying he needed to be alone and that was the last time he was seen alive. 
At 6am on the 1st of January 2000, Jason's body was found hanging from a rail on the side of the road. A belt was wrapped around his neck and the railing was very low to the ground, so it seemed very unlikely he'd been able to hang himself, just like in Errol's case. Despite how unusual this sounds, it only took Senior Investigating Officer 23 minutes to decide he'd completed suicide, in a street, on the busiest night in years. Police didn't take any fingerprints from the railing, preserve his clothing or body to check for DNA evidence, or check the nearby bushes for any signs of a struggle. They didn't even bother to look at CCTV from the surrounding area, or question any of the people at the pub that night. They simply declared that he had killed himself. Again, most of the McGowan family were in disbelief that two of their family members had died in a very similar way, yet no proper investigation was being done. They were having none of it and they got both cases on the front of two local newspapers. This instantly got the police's attention and they opened both cases in February 2000. Chief Constable Peter Hampson overturned the suicide ruling and he launched a joint investigation looking into both deaths. They were able to track down most of the other patrons who were at the Elephant and Castle pub on the night that Jason died and questioned over 1,300 people. They went back to the scene looking for any clues, but if they found anything, this has never been made public. They tried to re-examine the small amount of evidence that had been collected, however one of the evidence bags was ripped and the other hadn't been sealed properly, so this was a dead end. The case received some attention after getting a small amount of airtime on the BBC show Crime Watch. On the show, Errol's brother Noel and Detective Superintendent Mel Shore pleaded for anyone with information to call the police. They shared CCTV images of some of the people from the pub that they were unable to interview and asked them to come forward. I don't know if any of these people did speak to the police, but I will have their pictures on my website and if you're watching this on YouTube, the pictures of them are on your screen now. If you are or know one of those people, please contact the authorities. They also spoke about a letter they had received from a woman in the days after Jason's death. They did not reveal any of the contents of the letter other than based on what she wrote in it, they are convinced she has a lot of credible information on the case. They did not say how they knew the writer was female and even now, 20 years on, none of the contents from this letter have been made public which I find bizarre. I understand why they wouldn't have released it at the time, but releasing it now is more likely to help the investigation than it is to harm it. Not only did police never reveal information about this letter, they only appealed for information about the letter on the Crime Watch episode. I couldn't find any articles that even mention the letter, which again is bizarre. Are they just hoping that the woman who wrote it just happened to watch one episode of Crime Watch and then felt the need to come forward? No news articles, no segments on the evening news, nothing. Is that all their case is worth to them? 10 minutes on one show? No, I don't think so. Their lives matter and their cases matter. And while the police can try to make up for the first investigation, it doesn't seem that they're using all the tools at their disposal the second time around. Someone else I want to talk about in this episode is a man called Johnny Elliott, a 43-year-old man who was a friend of Errol's. Johnny spoke about Errol and Jason's death and told his son, quote, if he was ever found strung up like the McGowans, it was not his fault, unquote. 
why did he think he would meet a similar fate to theirs? Sadly, he did, and he was also found hung at a low height on the 31st of May 2001, less than two weeks after making that comment. The last time he spoke to anyone was on the 28th, when he told his mum how excited he was to see his eight-year-old daughter Sinead that weekend. He called his elderly mother daily to check in on her, so when he hadn't called her for a few days, his sister Michelle got worried. She knew that when he had fights with his wife, something which apparently happened regularly, he would go to a flat he had lived in before he got married, a flat that he had kept hold of for years. Michelle found the doors unlocked and the windows open, so she was able to enter the flat easily, but it didn't take long before she found her brother's body, hanging from the banister with a belt attached to a curtain tie. She said, quote, John was just lying there on the stairs. He was so straight as if he was standing to attention. All I could see was John in this belt around his neck. I could tell he was dead." Unquote. Six to eight people trampled through the scene before it was finally taped off, although police explained this by saying, quote, "...it is inevitable there is contamination at the scene. The prime function of an officer is to preserve life." Unquote. I do understand this to a certain degree, but Michelle said it was obvious just by looking at Johnny that he was gone and that no efforts would have been able to save him. We don't even know that he died that day, and given that he had not been in contact with anyone for a few days, it's highly possible that he had been dead for quite some time, which I'm sure would have been obvious to people on the scene. As like in Errol and Jason's case, there was no apparent sign of a struggle and the case was ruled a suicide. But given how the first two cases were handled, I don't have a lot of faith that they looked too hard. The coroner said that while there was no evidence that anyone else had been in the house with him, they couldn't rule it out either. A spokesman for the police said, quote, The circumstances may give people the impression that there is more to it than perhaps there is, and we need to thoroughly investigate it. We can't rule anything out. There's no indication to say anything suspicious has gone on, unquote. Um, apart from the fact that three people who knew each other apparently killed themselves in the exact same way, which would have been very hard to execute, in the span of 18 months. No, doesn't sound suspicious at all. Please explain the reasoning behind the apparent suicide by saying he had, quote, bouts of depression and schizophrenia, unquote, and that he had spent time in psychiatric facilities. But from what I could find, there are no reports saying that his behaviour had changed on the run-up to his death. He was excited to see and spend time with his daughter. While I do agree that a suicide is a possibility here, I don't think you can ignore how similar his death is to both Jason and Errol's. Johnny's family do believe he was murdered, but for a different reason than Jason and Errol. They say that he wasn't receiving racial abuse, but owed a lot of money to drug dealers, specifically Asian gangs. Sound familiar? I wonder, is Johnny the friend of Errol's caught up in gang rivalry and drug dealing, or did he know more than one person who had a substance misuse issue? I think it's important to think about, as Errol was considering, quote, exposing, quote, these gangs to the police. Johnny's family don't feel that the police are taking his case seriously and say they have been, quote, fobbed off, unquote. Johnny's father, John Elliott, said, quote, We don't think they're pursuing the investigation with the vigour that they should be. They're just saying things to make us feel better. It is patronising. You put questions to them and you don't get answers, unquote. Police refuted this by saying, quote, 
we continue to maintain close contact with the family who have raised a number of issues with us. Some of them have been thoroughly investigated and we have found no evidence to support them, and other inquiries are still ongoing. This has been a major investigation ongoing since May." Unquote. Errol's brother Clifford commented on Johnny's death, saying, quote, I hope the police do a thorough investigation for the family's sake so they don't have to go through what we did. I've known Johnny Elliot all his life. He was a nice character, one of the characters from Telford. He was the type of person who can look after himself." Unquote. There were inquests into all three deaths, each conducted separately. In July 2001, Errol's inquest began, although the jury were not allowed to hear information about Jason or Johnny's death, or how the cases might be connected. The judge warned the all-white jury about the evidence they would hear related to the racial abuse he suffered at the hands of Robert Boyle and his friends. The judge said, quote, it became abundantly apparent to me while reading the file that once again a number of fundamental problems in our society, and in particular racism and unacceptable behaviour, have been brought into the public arena. I have to warn you that some of the evidence you will hear will be quite shocking. Be that as it may, you must listen to it. You will no doubt be astonished to hear the amount of harassment they endured on a regular basis. You will be horrified to hear the racial harassment Mr McGowan suffered and the effect it had on him." Unquote. Sixty witnesses testified and after five weeks of listening to various pieces of evidence, the jury found that Errol had completed suicide. The family solicitor Errol Robinson said, quote, The verdict is not accepted by the family because the opportunity to give a definitive answer as to how Mr McGowan died was lost forever on July 2nd, when the police mindset resulted in the scene not being treated as a crime scene, which the circumstances and background clearly dictated. All witnesses, police and experts accept this failure meant the third party involvement could not be ruled out." Unquote. Johnny's death was also ruled as being a suicide in 2002, but Jason's inquest ended slightly differently. The jury was not allowed to rule his death as an unlawful killing, but were asked instead to either rule it a suicide, accident, or give an open verdict, and they chose the latter. I find it very interesting they did not allow the jury to consider unlawful killing, and I wonder how they would have ruled had they been allowed to consider foul play. All the McGowan and Elliot family want is justice for their loved ones, and like in the Stephen Lawrence case, they are considering a private prosecution, or at least they were in 2003. The McGowan family released a statement after both inquests were complete, saying, quote, My family has gone through exceptional hardship and living hell over the last three years. We did not only suffer one killing, but two in the space of six months. The initial police investigation into Errol and Jason's death was insufficient and our concerns were dismissed. I have lost faith in the inquest procedure. I do not want my family to continually suffer at the hands of the authorities. The McGowan family does not believe that we will get justice in these courts." Unquote. Errol's death was the UK's, quote, first officially recognised case of someone having been driven to suicide by racial harassment. Unquote. Whether you believe he killed himself or was killed by someone else, his death does seem to have been the result of racial violence and it's probable Jason died trying to put a stop to it. Margaret Wood, the Assistant Chief Constable, said, quote, We have clearly learned many lessons from the investigation into the deaths of Errol and Jason. They have caused us to look very closely at our procedures and practices, and as a result, I firmly believe this is now helping us to improve our standards and service across all sections of our community. Unquote. 
So does that mean they will take future reports of racism seriously and not just sweep them under the carpet like they did with Errol? Do they now understand that Errol wouldn't have been the first person to apparently kill themselves over racial abuse and do they understand that he won't be the last? I haven't been able to find any articles on Jason, Errol or Johnny's case written after 2003 and it seems like their cases are cold and have been forgotten about. I really think that these cases need more media attention so please, if you are in England, particularly the Telford area, please share this episode. Get in touch with your favourite true crime creators and see if they are willing to cover these cases. Something just really does not sit right with me with these cases and I truly believe that there is foul play involved and that they are connected. If you agree, please help me get the word out about Jason, Errol and Johnny's case. Remember, there will be no justice, there will be no peace and no lives matter until black lives matter. All photos and sources related to this case can be found on our website at www.uncovertruecrimepodcast.co.uk Thank you for listening till the very end and please tune in tomorrow for our last episode in the Racism Killed series. Please stay safe and have a good night.